This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806? And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. What makes him think that he can do it? What is the culture that makes a man think that he can do that? Times have changed. No more, chaps. No more. It can't happen. Everyone is watching you and all of Australia is participating in an election next year. COVID dreams. Weird, awful dreams. What would a weird dream in Caroline Wilson's world look like? I'm going to do an interview and I haven't done the research or I'm about to appear on television. I don't know what I'm going to say. If that's a recurring nightmare, but usually exams. No, just weird and horrible and they're finished. Get Back may stand as the best rock doc ever. Well, I agree with you, Variety. I think it is. What this tells us is a revised history, the truth about the Beatles. And it's great that all this vision and audio has survived. Yes, there were blues and yes, there was bagging of each other. And, but as you say, they were family and they did get on and Peter Jackson sort of rediscovered them. Well, you'll start getting into the Christmas spirit soon. Oh, already talking about the Christmas menu over here, Corrie. We've got lots of lovely Swedish family coming over, so I'm looking forward to a bit of herring. But I will be doing my Christmas ham and I will be brining my turkey. I'm sorry, no offence to the Swedes, but you're on your own with the herring. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin. Hi everyone, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. It is our 199th episode. I'm Corrie Perkin and I'm here with my friend Caroline Wilson who is in Amsterdam and talking to us via the little screen and the microphone. Hi Caro, how's life over there? That's very good. I'm, I'm glad you're not saying a piece of string and a couple of tins, Corrie, because that's how I'm sure it sounded like some weeks. But um, I'm good, thank you. I'm feeling a lot better. And I'm very happy to see you um, on this first day of winter for me and first day of summer for you, which is pretty weird, isn't it? Not only are we different time zones, weather zones, sort of everything zones at the moment, complete diametric opposites. Um, But things are going well in Melbourne, I gather. Well, there's been a lot of coverage on the Caroline Wilson health, uh, the medical issue. It seems to have been the story of the weekend, (laughs) Kaz. You've been here, there and everywhere, as the Beatles would say. Before before we kick off, Corrie, we probably should thank our wonderful sponsors, Red Energy, who have the most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. And also we need to thank Prince Wine Store, who I gather you're doing um, a bit of work with at the moment, who are bringing us the best wines in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. If you mean a bit, of, the, work, um, if you mean a bit of work going to pick up my box of wine, then yes, I am doing a bit of work. I've been there quite a bit. And in fact, uh, Miles and search, I... Miles, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Miles, you and I will be talking about some of that research later on. And also uh, you have a very interesting book and a recipe, and I have uh, a, a world premiere screen to discuss as well. And Miles, uh, of course, from Prince Wine Store, as I said, will be coming in. Caro, next week uh, is our 200th episode. They said we'd never make it. Well, I don't actually know who 
ever said that. Did they? <laughs> no one did. We would totally convince you, Jane and I, that we would be here. But um, it is really wonderful. It is an opportunity next week, of course, to thank not only Red Energy, Prince Wine Store and all of the um, behind-the-scenes sponsors who have been with us, but also the big pod family, as I call them, the visitors and the regulars that we've had over the years. And, of course, backed by popular demand for our 200th is Anna from the Op Shop. Anna Barry will join us next week. I think she will have a plethora of uh, books and screen, seeing that she seemed to do a lot of that during lockdown, as we all did. So, Caro, looking forward to that. But as you say, today or this week is the first week of summer here in Australia and... Um, we had this uh, yesterday sunshine and thunderstorms all within one hour, so a typical sort of Melbourne muggy December day. How's the weather over there? Oh, getting cold, Corrie, getting cold and dark. Unfortunately, um, the week that um, I was locked down in my apartment, being sick with COVID, I was looking out the window at beautiful sunshine and the weather has been remarkably good for most of the time I've been here. But it's just starting to get, it was a little bit cold and rainy today uh, we need gloves now. Very difficult to go out without planning. You know, you need, really need to plan every time you need the house because there's lots of layers to be had. And um, but not you know freezing. Like still only t-shirt, maybe two t-shirts, warm jumper, and a puffer or a coat. So it's not too bad. But you do your your hands get very cold, and the days are getting very short. But yes. the Christmas tree went up in our little village today, first of December, and that was was much excitement. And so I'm, you know, I'm still pretty cheerful here over in Amsterdam. Good. Well, we'll talk about COVID and your health in a minute, but let's just quickly deal with some housekeeping. Any apologies, Caro? Anything you need to fess up about? I don't think I've got any apologies, but I apologise for not having responded to all the lovely um, mail I received when um, we, after we'd spoken on the podcast about me having COVID. I heard from all over the world, Corrie, um, our friend from London got in touch. Brett NMG, who used to run a restaurant in Sorrento that we used to go to a lot, uh, at the moment living in northern Italy and sent beautiful photos from their um, village on a lake and lots of nice wishes. It's just been very overwhelming to hear such nice, you know, thoughts from everyone, including work colleagues back in Melbourne. I don't think I made any blunders last week. So, no, did, did so anyone, we usually have to apologise oh, yeah, to someone, I, don't look, we? I haven't been picked up and I haven't noticed. So let's move on to... Um, we did have some interesting feedback from our Tim Payne discussion, but, it, you know, not really anything we need to apologise for. No, just our views as usual. You know, that's the way it is with you and I, isn't it? <laughs> we Sometimes we forget the microphone's rolling. We just discuss things and, no, not really. I think we were pretty fair. But um, thank you to everyone for your correspondence. We've got, we have a couple of uh, lovely comments and discussion points here from G 29 on Instagram. Thanks for the podcast. An expat Aussie stuck overseas. You've been a breath of fresh air and sanity, reminding me of my hometown, Melbourne, we're all going well. We will be in two weeks. Oh, Faye, I hope you are, and I hope this new variant doesn't mean that you can't come. Um, she says, best wishes to both you and I, Carol, and, of course, to Miss Jane. And she says, and even though I've basically given up drinking during the time, hello to Miles too. Oh, that's so nice, Faye. Thank you. Corrie, um, I really um, was interested, you know, 
I had a bit of a go at you for your um, grumpy last week about the cost of the ferry. But wasn't that interesting about the Kangaroo Island ferry, which I have caught many, many years ago? Was it um, Sue McClay? Yeah, Sue McClay. Yeah, Sue McClay on email. And um, it was very, uh, it was a really interesting thank you for that. And she said that we've become her regular company on the morning walks. And she said, Corrie's recent grumpy regarding the Queenscliff Ferry struck a chord as I travel weekly between Adelaide and Kangaroo Island for business. Backstairs Passage, which separates King Island from the mainland, has the dubious honour of being the most expensive waterway in the world per kilometre to traverse. There is only one ferry service that can accommodate vehicles and freight. Luckily, as residents, we are afforded a slight discount, but the water gap, as it's known in business terms, plays a huge role in the island's economy, both to and fro. Um, so she's also saying that, um, you know, ferry prices should come down, but she says despite the cost of the ferry, it's well worth it and we would love to see you there. Oh, sorry, Kangaroo Island. I keep saying King Island. Kangaroo Island, of course, off the beautiful South Australian coast. And Sue also urges us to go to the Fleurier Peninsula, which we have been meaning to do, Corrie, which was on our bucket list. In fact, it was on our 2021 list, but things got in the way, covid family in Amsterdam. It'll have to happen next year. But who knew that the Kangaroo Island Ferry was the most expensive waterway from the mainland of South Australia in the world? I had no idea. Well, Sue does not relate what the actual figure is, the cost of it, but I'd love to know, Sue, if you want to get in touch with us again. It's quite an interesting issue because I I was talking about, the, you know, this the, after the grumpy, uh, someone I know heard this and said, I couldn't agree with you more about the cost. And we both agreed if you just brought it down to under that $100 mark, both ways, back and forward, you'd probably have double the traffic. Anyway, it obviously is not a problem because the ferry is packed each time you go on it. Caro, here's one for you from C. She does not wish to mention her name and she's she's talking about when she worked in Amsterdam and she said, I know it sounds crazy as the food scene there is much improved over the last five years, but when we were there, it was almost impossible to find anywhere that would serve food before lunchtime. At best, getting a shitty toasted sandwich and bad coffee. Our Dutch friends said we were crazy and that no one eats breakfast. But we knew better and pushed ahead anyway. And in 2012, we opened Little Collins in De Bjip. P-I-P-I- What? It's Okay, I just have to spell it, just so potties don't think I'm an idiot. D-E is the first word, P-I-J-P. I'm glad you're getting into the Dutch. I, I would have no idea how to pronounce that, to pipe. Well, um, it's actually, it's one of the best known areas of Amsterdam and it's the next suburb from, it, it's like on my back door, Corrie. So you and know it, Caro, tell us about it. Well, this place that um, C, not her real name, works at an AFL club, recommends, actually, um, I've, I've ridden past on my bike a couple of times and it is true, it's still really hard to find a good place for breakfast. We've found some great coffee places and there's a lot of them springing up all around town. And when I was here in April, I found a lot too because it was the one thing you could do because you couldn't eat out, you couldn't really do anything Amsterdam was in lockdown. But they don't, people, Dutch people don't really go out for breakfast. You know, it's a bit of a, it's a massive Melbourne and Sydney thing, as we know, massive Australian thing really all over Australia. But um, here it's not a thing. There's beautiful pastries at every coffee shop, but that's about it. And there's some wonderful places. Um, oh, there's there's so many wonderful breakfast places now, but they are still, when I say so many, you have to be read about them, be recommended them. I've ridden past Little Collins and thought, oh, I wonder, you know, 
Well, there you go. Race, race in there and get your smashed avo, Caro. Well, you wouldn't do smashed avo here because, you you know, when you when in Rome, Corrie, you like to do different things. But I will try it. So thank you, C, for that recommendation. There, the, there are so many good places where Australians are baristas. Um, so many. Um, ben Callahan is um, a friend of ours, as we know, is works as a barista at a wonderful place called Coffee District. There are two of those nearer where Rose lives, in the sort of old South area. And um, but I'll tr- and there's a great Japanese restaurant we went to called One Hundred One Gowrie. Well, when we went there, we realised the, the chef was from Sydney, and One Hundred One Gowrie was his Sydney address when he was growing up. We thought we were going to this amazing, you know, innovative, and it, it is. It was a wonderful restaurant, but um, the Australians have a big reputation around yeah, the do. world. Corey, they they do. In, they do indeed. Opening up in all sorts of places, from London to New York, and of course Amsterdam. So on to life in Amsterdam, Caro. Tell us about your health, the, the ongoing impact, if there has been any, of your recent COVID experience. How's all the household going? And um, is anything different for you? No, it, it, we're all better, Corrie. You just have a, a bit of a washed out feeling that lingers after all the symptoms go. Those the, You do, I don't know if you've ever read about them, I'd never heard about this, but COVID dreams, weird, awful dreams, and they've ended, which I'm very, very glad to um, say. Nothing more boring than people who talk about their dreams, but it was pretty weird there for a few nights. Um, completely better. So that's a real relief. Um, what, would a weird, what would a weird dream in Caroline Wilson's world look like? Would it be having a fight with oh, Eddie Maguire and, and Jeff Kennett at the same time or...? Everyone, everyone's usual nightmare or my usual nightmare, I don't know about you, involves I'm going into an exam and I haven't studied for it and I don't have my pen. But, you know, it, that is just, it's just the classic. And I'm saying to, I'm I'm saying to, to Miss Sloan, I'm saying to Miss Sloan, my English teacher, but I have three kids and a job. I, have, I know I haven't read the four books. <laughs> or, um, or I'm going to do an interview and I haven't done the research or I'm about to appear on television. I don't know what I'm going to say. It, that's the recurring nightmare. But usually exams, no, just weird and horrible and they're finished. Um, no, look, I, I just think I'm sort of treating it as a booster shot, Corrie, which I'm due to have when I get back to Australia anyway, and I will be having. But um, I think that so many people here have had it and a lot of my daughter's friends have had it once in London and and also in Amsterdam, and it's just sort of such a normal thing here because the cases per day is still well over 20,000 in the Netherlands every day. So it's not really a big deal to have had it as much as, I suppose, among our friendship group in Australia. But, yeah, just slightly washed out. Can't really say much more. Very nice to be going out and about again. Took a few days to really get my mojo back. Yesterday we got on a train and went to The Hague, which we'd planned on doing then Hague. We've been planning on doing that. Can for I quite can a I while. just ask, do you pronounce it the Hague or the Hague? I should know from my Dutch background, of course. <laughs> well, I think it's the Hague, but please Dutch someone will come and tell me I'm wrong. Den Haag, as we locals refer to it, is less than an hour by train from Amsterdam. And it's only only 15 minutes from the Hague is a beautiful little town called Delft, which is where the famous China is made. One of the most pretty historic villages, full of little canals. So that was our sort of cultural vibe for the um, for this week. And of course, the and this will be pronounced wrongly, but Mauritius or Moritz House, 
um, the most famous gallery, I guess, one of the most famous in, Amst- in, in the Netherlands, and it's in The Hague, a beautiful old building, an old sort of stately sort of palace where Vermeer's best works are, including The Girl with the Pearl Earring, um, also of literary fame, The Goldfinches there, and many famous Rembrandts, including um, Dr. Tulp and his um, Tulp and his famous anatomy. So that was oh, great. Oh, how really wonderful. Lovely. And was it busy, Caro, the gallery, or did you feel like you had it to yourself? No, no, no everything's a bit grim. It's a bit sad. The galleries are still open, but social distancing, only 10 in a room, and um, over-servicing because, you know, there's not really enough to do. The cafes are open, but um, they're not that busy either. The gallery shops are open, but, you know, things are reduced. It's a bit, it's a, it's a little bit disappointing, but on the other hand, I walked into the room where the Vermeer, a uh, beautiful um, scape of Delft where Ver- Vermeer was born and died, a beautiful um, cityscape, one of the most famous cityscapes in all of Dutch art. And the girl with the pearl earring was on the other side of this room and I was the only person in the room. Wow. Was was Colin Firth there? That was one of the worst movies (laughs) I have ever seen. One of the worst movies I have ever seen. Really? Yes. I don't think I ever saw it. Mm. I saw The Goldfinch, which um, had Nicole Kidman in, which was okay. Yeah, no, I, I never saw that. It was a good book. I enjoyed the book. Yeah, it was a great anyway, book. Anyway, she's everywhere, the girl. You walk through Delft and they've even got, you know, the cutout circle where you stick your head through. <laughs> <laughs> I, was gonna, those, um, I was going to say if you were a tea towel, you'd be, that'd be a worry, but the cutout, you know, Cara's, Cara's head with the l- lovely girl with the, the with the blue... <laughs> With the blue turban or whatever she has on her head. Such a beanie, beanie um, covered head. But um, no, so it, it is interesting. It's an interesting, and, and uh, the Hague was very quiet. There's, that's on the coast. We went to this lovely fish restaurant on in Inner Marina that we thought looked a bit touristy, but in fact was really lovely. But yeah, quiet, bleak, a bit like a scene out of Wallander, mm. the um, Dutch coastline. Um, Anyway, look, it's it's just it's fascinating to see, and you you look around and you think, I wonder what this would be like in good weather, weather where there are lots of crowds. But on the other hand, it's nice to see it and have it all to yourself. Well, that's true. A lot of people say travel to Europe in winter because it's all your own. So but maybe Corrie, that's the rest lesson. There's, there's obviously, things are much busier in Melbourne, despite the Omicron impact, and we're over here very nervously waiting to see what sort of quarantine rules are going to be in place by the time we get home. Um, and I see the bill was finally passed in Victorian Parliament, so that um, that debate is obviously over. Apart from Omicron and the vac- vaccinated versus the unvaccinated, and there seem to be a lot of stories going around about people getting sick and getting very sick who aren't vaccinated, the story that we've been waiting for has finally happened, which was the release of the Kate Jenkins report. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a it's a game changer, Caro, and um, uh, you know, like, it just depends whether everybody who is they're mouthing the the right words, they're saying that they will act upon it, but yet to be seen. And there are so few sitting days in Parliament scheduled for twenty twenty two. I don't know when they're going to quite get the band together on that. I don't know whether you've heard overnight, Caro, but Greg Hunt is expected. We're recording this on Thursday. Potties and Greg Hunt, 
The Health Minister is expected to announce he's retiring from Parliament and Christian Porter is leaving. So I don't want to say the rats are, the rats are deserting the sinking ship, but something interesting is going on there. Um, Caro, lots happening in, in Parliament House, even though not a lot was happening. Um, interestingly, not a lot of legislation or great debate being pushed through, but there were a couple of seminal moments, I think, for the, for the particularly for the women of Australia. The first one, as you said, the, the, the release of the Kate Jenkins report uh, has been, you know, really interesting. Uh, and I think as we unpack that 456-page report, a lot of the detail hasn't come to the fore yet with all of us. But interestingly, 1,723 individuals spoke to Kate and her research team, which I find pretty extraordinary, across the board, across 33 organisations. So not just the parties, but also security staff and, and uh, you know, um, all individuals who work at Parliament, Federal Parliament House. So that was kind of interesting. And then later in the day, there was this most extraordinary and terrible moment in the Senate when Senator Jackie Lambie was on her feet addressing, addressing, the, addressing the floor and uh, there, were, there were to be heard, allegedly, but I think it's um, been verified by more than three or four sources, male members of the government growling and making dog noises as Jackie Lambie spoke. And... Sarah Hanson Young, the Green Senator, stood up and and implored the um, the, the Speaker to to take action here, that this was not appropriate in this House at this time. And then Penny Wong stood up and looked in the direction of the alleged dog whistlers and called them out on it, and said, "You know, you should come forward. You should admit what you've done. You're all noise when the Senator's talking, and now nobody wants to say a word." So that was really inter- interesting. Later, um, Victorian Senator David Van, Liberal Senator David Van, apologised to Jackie Lambie. He said that he wasn't making those noises, that he had his mask on and it had been misconstrued behind the mask. So we haven't heard actually what his comments or what he was saying, but there is a bit of a difference, I would have thought, between making dog noises and growling as opposed to saying, yes, here, here. We should specify it obviously wasn't dog whistling, which is something... Oh, sorry, not dog whistling. Yeah. Sorry, did I say but, that? My apologies. Yes, yeah, dog which noises. Is, which is obviously, as I said, equally insidious, but um, but not what they were doing. Yeah, I, I did read about this. Mm, the same day, so within a couple of hours of this, this landmark report being handed down about it, there has to be change, particularly in... in was it more than 52% of people interviewed said they'd either experienced bullying or some form of harassment or worse? Yes. Or assault um, even. And um, I think, you know, this to, to boil it down, it sounds like Kate Jenkins, her recommendations are going to be... I think there's a lot that they are going to follow, but there's a lot that she asked to happen that, that hasn't happened. And, you know, I think there's a lot more to un, to be, well, you say unpacked, Corrie, but there's a lot more to be revealed, as you say. But I don't really feel, I I haven't felt that the Prime Minister has really, really stuck his mast in here. I don't I think he's really tied himself to this one yet. No, he and hasn't. He hasn't come I around really, to it. I, think, I hope it becomes an election issue if he doesn't. And I hope it becomes an election issue if he does, because they've, they've gone to the, after Brittany Higgins and her 
appalling, you know, horrifying revelations and what happened to her. This has happened and they've given her probably not as many powers as she would have liked, but she's done a, an amazing job, Kate Jenkins. I mean, I, she's going to need therapy herself, I reckon, after well, some of the things she's Well, actually, I, I was in contact with Kate last night. We had a bit of back and forth because I sent her a congratulatory uh you know, verbal bouquet, and um, we had a bit of a chat, and I think she is rather exhausted. But I have to say also that the bad behaviour continued later on in the House of Reps, Anthony Albanese um, accusing, saying to Peter Dutton, calling him a buffhead, which wasn't one of the high moment, highlights or high moments of the Leader of the Opposition's performance in in Canberra. But just on this, um, this these dog noises and so on, Caro, I really felt that Pretty much, when you say is it a, is it an election issue, I think it probably could be, because I just felt that every woman in Australia who was watching this or saw it on social media, and gosh, there was a lot of coverage on it, even on your Instagram um, and Facebook, it really took off. Twitter went nuts. Um, it it was it was more than just a, a senator being interrupted by uh, by an opposition member, which happens all the time. This, you know, first thought is. What's he doing? Is he trying to put her off her game? Um, is she try? Is he trying to bring it to the end because she's rambling? Well, I didn't get that sense. Um, is it just a natural instinct uh, of, of a kind of a sexist comment? Well, obviously, I think the latter. And what makes him think that he can do it? What, what is the culture that makes a man think that he can do that? Times have changed. No more chaps. No more. It can't happen. Everyone is watching you, and all of Australia is participating in an election next year. I think people were pretty well, horrified. It's the highest office of the land, too. I mean, that's what's really, you know, our taxes at work. No, it's it's absolutely horrifying to me. And I think, what was it Malcolm Turnbull who said Australian Parliament in Canberra was operating really like corporate Australia 20 years earlier? And, and then there's been obviously the talk, and, and I think they really need to look at an alcohol ban. Maybe an alcohol ban is going to help solve it to a degree. I think the the links with alcohol and drugs to some of the bad behaviour in Parliament House just continues to be a recurring theme. Anyway, look, But doesn't um, that fill you with utter horror and sadness that we have to place such a ban on our politicians? We vote them in to lead the country and then we have to instil a ban to stop them drinking because they behave so badly. It just seems incredulous that we have to we have to do this. It's just I mean, I am just aghast of what's happened this week and I think Kate Jenkins, she's not my crush this week, but she can be my secondary crush. One of the problems, of course, is the fact of Canberra itself and that people are living in this artificial world, which is um, for pretty much everyone, not their home, and it doesn't excuse the behaviour in any way at all. But I think it's been... um, one of the things that has, has led to the behaviour. And I should just, so I don't have to apologise next week, when I talked about um, the bill being passed, of course, I was talking about state, state government yeah, bill being passed, um, relating to the emergency powers, relating to pandemics. They vote, so, they, um, they spent 11 hours uh, debating just one point. So, so look, the, the, this this bill before the the, the state government, uh, the state parliament, as you say, Caro, has been uh, difficult and um, problematic and has really divided people. But as a voter, I take great confidence in the fact that democracy is working because compromise occurred. And, yep. and members of parliament from other parties 
uh, had the courage of their convictions to stand up and hold hold forth with what they believe should happen in terms of amending issues on that bill. So I think that was um, probably a high point if indeed we have any coming out of um, politics this week in Australia. Hey, I need a drink. (laughs) Jane, get that trolley happening, baby. As Corrie just said, we both need a drink after those um, fairly weighty conversations, fascinating though they were, and it's time to open the cocktail cabinet. Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store is going to tell us this week about his Christmas, much talked of, Christmas mixed dozen. Hello there, Miles. Hello. Hello, Miles. I was very Hello. fortunate to pick up three. I've tried three of the dozen. And um, I'd like you to take us super quick through each of them and why you've chosen them. But can we start with the one that of the three that I really loved, and I'm sure they're all terrific, um, which was the Valpolicello Classico um, by La Dama. <clears throat> Gosh, I love an Italian read, I have to say. Yeah, it's a great um, great wine. It's, so Valpolicello, as you said, the blend of a few different varietals, and uh, often made it a really sort of forward, nice, juicy sort of fruity style, nice kind of spiciness. And and La Dama makes it a little bit lighter again than maybe some other producers. Um, so it's a really good spring, summer type red. It's not too heavy, has that lovely sort of Italian savouriness, but a lot of that lovely fruit as well. What did you think? Uh, yeah, uh, all of that, and and it's it's lighter. It it it, it is. It, it there's there's a touch of a pinot, an Australian pinot noir about it. Sure. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I think for a, a summer red, you don't always want to dig down into the Shiraz in the middle of summer. I think it's absolutely perfect. And so were the other two that you provided. Why don't you run through the other eleven in the box that um, our potties can be a part of and and um, get in touch with you about. Yeah, let's see if I can remember them all off the top of my head. You might have to count them off for me. <laughs> um, well, just a few highlights. Think, Do a few highlights then. Well, I think <laughs> you, had, you also had the Bayou River Villages Chardonnay, which is probably one of the best value Chardonnays around. Um, I actually don't know how they do it for that money. It's fantastic. Um, there's a rosé in there, the Coop Roses rosé. Yeah, we had that. We had that at Saturday family lunch. It was fantastic. Oh, it's a good little wine. A rosé, yeah. Caro. I I tried a rosé that I, I was going to say. <laughs> Hallelujah, Corrie. It's not such a bad drop, is it? Well, it wasn't sweet. You know how some rosés can be a bit sweet. The aftertaste. Yeah, not, not these not days, Corrie. Miles one. knows all about that. So what else is in there? There's an Albarino from Spain. I have a, a, a Malbec from, from Argentina. Nice, juicy, soft, fleshy style. There's a Magnum of Cote de Rhone from Gigal, one of the most famous Cote de Rhone producers. So we always put a Magnum in the Christmas mix, doesn't uh, There's a sparkling wine from Ailey Bank, which is Yarra Valley. So always nice to have a, something sparkling. Um, I think it sounds pretty perfect. I've yeah, never. I haven't. Pino, I haven't had that. Um, I have not had that. Uh, Early bank, did you say? Yeah, Early bank. Um, so it's a it's a it's a little cheapy, but it's really well done for the money. Um, so what is the pri- what is the price? Speaking of money, what is the price of Miles's mixed dozen? All right, so it's normally 
three. Well, this one, we always try to really sort of get you good value on this one. So it's 320 normally on the shelf and it's 255 for um for Christmas. Wow. How do yeah. you do it for the price? <laughs> it takes a while. <laughs> do your no, bo- I enjoy putting these dozens together. Do your bosses know that you're doing this while the cat's away, the mice are playing? Oh, yeah. They just let me do whatever I want. They're very good like that. Oh. <laughs> very trusting. Well, it's not like that around here. Miss Jane rules a very tight ship here. I have to be in full <laughs> attendance and do as she says every week. Yeah. Hey, Miles, that yeah. is a great offer to our potties and um, – how can we um, get in touch with the offer, read more about it, and place an order? Well, look, I'll put, I'll put a bunch of my favourite wines and the ones we talked about today on the um, Don't Shoot the Messenger page on, on the website. So if you just go through to princewinestore.com.au, on the front banner there, it has the Don't Shoot the Messenger link, and you can go through to the page, and it has everything we've talked about. Um, you normally get 10% off. So I'll put all the single wines on there, which you get 10% off, um, but the mixed dozen's already discounted at 255 So Fantastic. And that'll be up there too. Thank you, Miles. That sounds great, Caro. If you are in quarantine when you return <laughs> at the end of December, I'll make sure that I send you over a box of the mixed dozen. Corrie, you'll be arriving at my back gate every day and taking my dog Queenie to the Oval or the local <laughs> beach for a walk. As well as dropping off the mixed dozen. Thank you very much. I'll be busy. Miles, thanks. And we look forward to seeing you with uh, Anna Barry, Anna from the Op Shop next week. And um, I'm not sure what topic we will discuss, but I'm sure it will be Christmas and summer related. Thanks, Miles. Thanks, Prince Weinstall. My pleasure. That was a cocktail cabinet for Prince Weinstall, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Remember, visit princewinestore.com.au, as Corrie has been doing in recent weeks. Uh, good little researcher over in Melbourne, and tell them that Caro and Corrie sent you. Now, Corrie, for Red Energy, you have a crush. I have two crushes, Caro, and they're both a bit of a valet. Well, three, actually, if you throw in there Angela Merkel, who is retiring this week as the German Chancellor after I... Th- I'm sure you had a crush on her before, Corrie. I know. I'm a, bit of a fan of, I'm a bit of a fan of Angela. I think we'll see her again on the world stage. But, no, I have two valets. My first valet is... David Dalithnew, and I must say uh, that um, if we have any Indigenous folk uh, listening to our podcast today, I'm about to mention someone who has uh, passed. But David, known as David Gulpilil, I believe was one of Australia's greatest actors. He died this week of lung cancer. He had been sick for quite some time. Um, There was just something about David on the screen, not only a terrific actor with with eyes and with a face that you just fell into on the screen. He was a superb dancer, which in fact was one of uh, one of the first skills that that um, brought him to to attention of the film directors who made Walk About his first film. But though do you, we were kids, or not really kids, but sort of kids, Caro, when um, Walkabout and Storm Boy hit the screen. I don't know whether you recall them. I certainly do. He was in Matt. Oh, so so. Um, it was just so. I just remember the beauty and the grace, and 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 kind of rethinking all of all of what I'd learned about at the Aboriginal culture in my 
white bread sandwich, 1960s private school kind of way. It was just, I realized there was a deeper culture and it was something important. And I knew that I then that I wanted to learn more about it. But Mad Dog Morgan, Ten Canoes, which was just such a brilliant project. But I think for me, his finest acting performance was in The Tracker. Do you remember The Tracker with that really menacing Gary, uh, Gary? Sweet. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that a great? Wasn't that a terrific? No, well, I've actually never seen it, but I, I know the film you're talking about. Sorry, I was because I hadn't seen it. I was wrecking my brain. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you would have seen it. I had a feeling I saw it with you. So, uh, so valet to uh, to David Dulles new, and the other one I wish to say farewell to is Fran Kelly, who retires this week from the Radio National Breakfast Spot after 17 years. I have woken up with her every morning. She has been my guiding light. She is. She has shone the light in dark corners. She has taken on some of the biggest bullies in the business, both politically, a political world and also uh, the commercial world and bullies generally. She has been warm and uh, full of empathy when she has talked about stories that have brought a tear to our eyes. She has been a great advocate of children um, and children who are in crisis or uh, all around the world, poverty, so on. And I just uh, feel this week a little bit like I did when Red Harrison retired from hosting AM back in back in the 1980s. I cried on his last morning. And this morning I was listening to Fran. This is her last day. As I said, it's Thursday. And I am absol- I feel very emotional and um, I'm going to miss Fran Kelly a lot. And I hope she doesn't disappear from our ABC screens. So that's my I those- hope she enjoys the sleepings too. She deserves them. <laughs> Wouldn't that be good after all those years of getting up at 3.30? So, Caro, um, book, screen and food, BSF, Red Energy brings us this segment each week. Thank you, Red Energy, once again. We love having a connection with you guys. You're going to kick us off with a book. I am, Corrie. I was looking for something to read at Budapest Airport about three or four weeks ago and a tiny little English-speaking section. Um, I've, I've finished my last book. And there was a book by William Boyd. Now, William Boyd is not someone I've read at any great length. I think we did Sweet Caress for Book Club, which I loved, and Trio, which I never read. But um, there was a book by William Boyd that I'd never heard of called Restless. Um, and I'm not sure if you've if you have you read Restless. No, I haven't read Restless. I've read about four Boyds, but not that one. Well, look, this is a guy who wrote A Good Man in Africa. Um, the Ice Cream War, Love is Blind, I'm told yeah, I have love to is read bl- You'd love Love is Blind. It's set, in, it's set in 19th century Paris and England. It's beautiful. Oh, well, and the other one is Any Human Heart. But this one is, believe it or not, Corrie, and you won't be surprised to hear this, a spy thriller. Um, it's set in two different time zones. It's um, a story with flashbacks um, involving the two main characters are women, which he writes very well. Um, a mother and a daughter. The mother is Eva, the daughter is Ruth. And at the beginning of the book, Ruth finds out that the mother, her mother, who is just living in a fairly remote um, foresty part of the English countryside where she mysteriously moved after Ruth's mother died and her mother was widowed, she finds out her mother was a spy, a spy who, um, a European spy who was recruited in Paris during World War II or just on the eve of World War II. And both stories are fascinating because it's basically set in the 40s and the 70s. Ruth is um, a language tutor 
in, I think, Oxford or Cambridge, and her mother's obviously living in the countryside. Ruth is a single mother with um, a, a sort of a, a bad egg German husband or not husband partner, father of the child who's married and who stayed over in Germany. And basically it is the unravelling of Eva's story. It is fascinating and what happens to her. And the two worlds collide as the novel continues because the mother needs a daughter to do something for her, to resolve something because she believes she's being followed and that her past has come back to haunt her. It is a real ripping yarn, but quite understated, not your almost a bit of a, a bit of the way like Kate Atkinson writes, although without the new without the sort of nuance and surprises. I really recommend this novel. Apparently it was made into a miniseries um, on British television starring Rufus Sewell and Charlotte Rampling as the older Eva. And I never saw it. I'm now going to hunt it out. But I thoroughly recommend William Boyd. And I'm so glad I've discovered him again. Well, Caro, uh, I've uh, I've reviewed Trio on our podcast. And I think a few years, a couple of years ago, at the very beginning, I did Love is Blind as well when that first came out. I'm a huge fan of William Boyd. And I think he's a really good, what I would call an intelligent holiday read. He's a, he's a terrific writer, really good wordsmith, but interesting characters, don't you think? It's all about the characters with him. Yeah, and, and different, you know, just something different with every book, a bit like Maggie O'Farrell, who I, I love even more. But now William Boyd gets a big tick for me and Restless. Now, Corrie, I'm so excited about your screen because I haven't seen it, although me and my childhood friend, my best childhood friend, Michael Ramston, went to see Let It Be in 1969 or 70. And absolutely loved it, but you've seen the real thing. Well, oh, well, in the interest of the <laughs> in the interest of this podcast, I have now watched more than eight hours, nearly nine hours of the Beatles three part documentary from beginning to end, and um, I cannot tell you how fine this is. This is Peter Jackson's documentary using footage that was uh, captured over the January of 1969 as the band prepared what then became the album Let It Be. They were actually also working on a live television concert, as you know or remember, Carol, maybe we don't remember because we were too little, but we know from folklore that the Beatles after about 1966 were completely spooked by performing live just because of the hysteria that their appearance caused. So they really went into the studio and never came out, Sgt Pepper's White Album, so on and so forth. But they were particularly keen in reconnecting. Paul especially, and this comes through in this three-part documentary, was very determined that they needed to reconnect with with, with a live performance because that's where the spontaneity and their greatness came from, he would argue. So this this um, footage um, was captured hours and hours, something like um, you know a hundred hours of uh, um, one hundred and forty hours of audio and sixty hours of footage, and it eventually became the film that you just mentioned, Let It Be. But whatever happened to the outtakes? And so this project has been morphing from Ringo and. Uh, Paul, Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney, the two surviving Beatles, and Olivia Harrison, the widow of George, and Yoko Ono, the widow of John Lennon, getting together and saying, well, we should really do something with this. Disney said, yep, we'll get behind it, and they approached Peter Jackson, the New Zealand director, to put this together. So he spent four years editing down 60 hours of footage into 
he started with six hours. And he, in an interview recently, he said he just couldn't cut anymore. He was asked to prepare a two-hour documentary and he just couldn't. And he went to Disney and the four producers, the, uh, the Beatle representatives and the Beatles, and said, I just can't do this anymore. It, it, is, it is impossible and it doesn't, it, it, it's just not, it's just not right because this is real art and it needs to be represented. There's a lot that I can get rid of, but this is, I can't cut anymore. I can't do it. Sought permission and they came back and said, yeah, go for it. So what we've got is this amazing thing on Disney Plus, which um, I did um, subscribe for a month to so I could watch this. But I tell you what, it's the best $11.90 I've spent in a long time. One of the things, oh, so many things I love about it. And in fact, I'll just cut to the chase. Variety said... Uh, this this documentary, which takes the title Get Back, which is after one of their songs on uh, the Let It Be album, Get Back may stand as the best rock doc ever. Well, I agree with you, Variety. I think it is. We've got, we've just, we're in the studio, first of all, at Twickenham, January 1969. They've set themselves three weeks to get a few numbers up to do this live performance. The tensions are horrendous, but folklore tells us that this is when the Beatles started breaking up, that there were antagonisms, that there were tensions. There were so few tensions. Caro, there were there were moments. George at one stage disappears for a couple of days. He says he's leaving the band. He comes back. But what, it, what this tells us is a revised history, the truth about the Beatles, which was they were friends up until the end. They were like a family. They knew each other's heartbeat. They... That particularly, I mean, the way they put songs together, they just start with, I mean, one of one of my favourite songs um, that in this in this thing is "On Our Way Home," the two of us, and um, they, John and John and Paul are just strumming away on an acoustic guitar, and they play it several times in a different accent. The first one in a posh accent, the next time in a Scottish accent. They do an Aussie accent. The Pakistani accent is hilarious. Then they sing the entire song with clenched teeth, with with roadies and producers and, um, you know, everybody around. George Martin, uh, their famous producer, everybody in fits of laughter. The joy, uh, Ringo the calm influence. Uh, John with Yoko by his side through the whole the whole thing, his need for her, you know, you, you really kind of review their relationship in a different way. Paul being the manager but not wanting to be the boss. We always knew John needed Yoko, but in the original film, Let It Be, there's a lot of antagonism towards Yoko, like she's at this sort of figure who sort of seemed to be hanging around. And um, and I, I've, I've read, I wonder how Michael Lindsay Hogg, who directed the original, feels because he seems to have focused a lot on the negative whereas Peter Jackson has put the whole thing, which is why it's great that he didn't cut it any further, and it's great that all this vision and audio has survived, shows that, yes, there were blues and, yes, there was bagging of each other and people being petulant and obviously the ba- you know, that they still really miss the influence of Brian Epstein, you know, who died a few years earlier. But as you say, they were family and they did get on and Peter Jackson sort of rediscovered them. I didn't. Well, I read an interview with Julian Lennon where he said he's fallen in love with his father, or I started oh, to love his father. You know, I don't. I don't doubt it. And in fact, Paul McCartney did an interview on NPR, uh, um, a, a podcast series that I really love. Uh, he he was talking about his new book, well, two books called Lyrics, but. Um, 
but he also at the end of it talked about this doco and he said that he had such bad memories of that time that they have clouded his judgment of that Let It Be album and that whole period. It was just so awful. And the way that Let It Be, the original movie, came out, Michael Lindsay Hogg's cut on it, uh, presented Paul as the kind of the bossy boots and the one who was, you know, agitating for independence. And in fact, you realise that they're, 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 these four these four musicians have been working over a period of time, 1968-69, with different people. George Harrison did a whole lot of work with uh, Bob Dylan and, and John and Yoko were doing a bit of their own stuff. Paul was writing a lot of stuff on his own. And, but they come together in this most wonderful creative way. And Yoko isn't the only wife who's going in and out. Linda Eastman is there for a lot of the time as well. I think sometimes Yoko, I often think Yoko got a hard, got a, a bad rap because based on, on racism, you know, the fact that she was the other, which people tend to freak out about and probably more so at the time. But she 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 is there. Uh, everybody is there. It's it's There's some really wonderful music. Like they play so much of their back catalogue just jamming away, just getting into the groove. And Billy Preston, who comes in as the keyboard player, really kind of saves the day in a way. He starts pr- providing a sort of a focus and they start focusing. And then one by one, these hits start coming out. They just start working on them. Let it be and across the universe. Yeah, uh, and um, oh, uh, dig a dig a dig a pony and uh, you know all these great tracks that we know. And then of course the finale is on the roof at the Apple Studios where they sing "Get Back." But I felt very emotional, Caro. I felt really emotional when I was watching this. It it took me back to my childhood self. My older brother, seven years older than me, had all the Beatles albums. I grew up with them. He He would often have friends over. They would play with them. I went straight back to that childhood era. And I just thought, gosh, you know, at the age of 29, 30 and 31, they'd broken up and that was it. And gosh, we missed a whole lot of... Uh, amazing music as a result. But hey, we're left with this. So it's really great. Disney Plus, get back. And um, as Molly Meldrum would say, do yourself a favour. And if you are doing yourself a favour, and it's sublime to the ridiculous, but check out Hard Day's Night again. I think. <laughs> How do you do up. that? How would you do that? Well, Probably Amazon Prime or something. Yeah. Available on some form of channel now that the Beatles are back in vogue. One of the funniest, most enjoyable films. I absolutely loved it. We we used to play Hard Day's Night on Dad's Odd Reel to Reel when we were kids. And, in fact, I've been singing If I Fell in Love With You to Sunny lately, my little granddaughter, because it's such a good song to sing to a baby. Um, they were, well, one of the, I think that Variety Review, or maybe it's another review uh, about the film you've just talked about, Get Back, refers to them as two and a half geniuses. So obviously, <laughs> Ringo not a genius. No, but that's really funny because he because he's um he's a calming influence. Ringo, interestingly, Ringo of the four of them is the natural performer. Whenever the camera, and in fact, the reason they have to do this in January nineteen sixty nine is that Ringo is has a part in a film that starts filming in February. So they've got kind of Times Winged Chariot right behind them. So they've got to get in and out of these studios and get this thing done because Ringo has an acting gig. And every time the camera, is there a narrator? 
No, no, there's no, there's no narrator. There is no narrator. There, there's the occasional slide on screen that tells you, you know, what's happening up to speed. Uh, you know, this happened then, or, or what date it is. And they use a calendar as well. So each day, we've got every single day of this kind of twenty-nine day period of preparing for this rooftop. It's incredible, and the tensions, and they, and then they have a weekend off. And George has disappeared and then George comes back. But there's lots of cups of tea. There's lots of sitting around jamming. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it is really, it's really good. So, listen, enough about that. But it is probably my highlight of everything I've watched this year. So I'm sorry that I have gone on. And thank you for giving me the time, everyone. Um, cooking, food, what are we eating? An extended screen. Well, I'll be quick and simple. This recipe comes to me from our friend Sally Howe, a great friend of the podcast, who sent it to me last week when she knew I was feeling a bit down in the dumps. I think it's um. How do I pronounce? Is it Adam Law? Yeah, Lau. Lau is is um. Adam how you Lau. It? Yeah. Zucchini caprese. Corrie, this is the most simple, beautiful recipe. It will be on your table all summer. There are very few ingredients. There's only this is how many ingredients there are. Olive oil, zucchini, about five of them, cut into irregular chunks, about four centimetres long. Salt and pepper, good quality white wine vinegar, that's the secret ingredient. Buffalo mozzarella and about half a cup of loosely packed basil leaves. The zucchini is basically fried on a barbecue grill and um, you add half the oil and the zucchini, you season it after you've um, got your barbecue grill all nice and warm. And once it's all starting to caramelise, you add the white wine vinegar. The recipe will be on the show notes. It is absolutely delicious. Rose, actually, daughter Rose, made it last night or the night before. I'll send you a photo of Rose's triumphant zucchini caprese. Absolutely delicious. Thank you very much, Sally Howe. There's nothing like a zucchini on a barbecue. Don't you reckon? They, They get that lovely chard on the outside and they're quite squashy and sweet on the inside. I love it. Yeah, and there's something about with the white wine vinegar and also the buffalo mozzarella, with you, and I think two big pieces. It's a beautiful side dish, a perfect side dish to go with fish, chicken, lamb, whatever. Great, good one. Well, that is BSF for this week, ending with Caro's zucchini recipe. Uh, thank you, Red Energy, powered by the Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 131- 806. Look, Jane is dialing right now as I speak. Now, Caro, grumpy. What what are you grumpy about apart from the fact that you got COVID and it's turning into winter and <laughs> it's you coming into a lockdown? What else can you be grumpy about? Five o'clock closing, completely lockdown related. Five o'clock closing, as you would say, has got whiskers on it. It is so frustrating. Everything started shutting at 8pm and that was really manageable, as I said to you several times on this podcast. Five o'clock, we thought, oh, well, we can still go and, you know, if we want to eat out, we can go to lunch. You can go and, well, no, actually, you can't go and have a drink because it's just too early. It's too early to, and it's really sad. <laughs> it's, can I say it's, it, it's never stopped you guys before? Well, but, Corey, you you the last thing you wanted to, I mean, what what we've been doing is Brendan and I are doing errands around town or doing something with um, Sunday or 
doing shopping or, you know, whatever exercise, we will meet at one of our favourite local brown bars or wine bars at 4.30 and have one drink just because it's dark by then or pretty much getting dark and you feel like it's night time. So you have a drink and you think, oh, well, you ride your bike home in the dark after one glass of wine and then you get home and it's quarter past five. <laughs> I mean, there's only so many episodes of Midsummer Murders I can, you know, stomach. And in, in the office, it is just extraordinary how boring five o'clock closing is. And it was, you know, when you travel, obviously, and, uh, there was a loophole, whereas if you stayed at a hotel, you could have a meal in a hotel. Now they've even stopped that. So you've got to order room service in your room. Now, I realise this is a first world problem. But it's just so disappointing when you're in a beautiful European city and you cannot do anything after five o'clock except walk the streets. And if it's raining, that's pretty grim, I can tell you. Oh, look, uh, you know, if you think you're grumpy now, what happens if you have to go into quarantine? Oh, God. Oh, yes. Melbourne's been in a long lockdown and Europe's been in a long lockdown. But having arrived here and being able to eat out and go to some wonderful places and ride your bike to wonderful adventures and just sit around in lovely outdoor bars with open fires and on canals. To not be able to do it is quite well, frustrating. You better hope that this Om- Omnicrom uh, strain um, doesn't impact upon you too greatly coming back into the country. Honestly, this well, – it's like – It's just everybody overreacting. Well, look, there is a bit of that too, but people – I'm glad people are nervous, to be honest, but you don't want to be overreacting. You know, somebody said, oh, there'll be a run on toilet paper in a minute. I thought that was going a bit too far given that 80-something percent of the nation is now vaccinated over this, over a certain the, age. But the, the new toilet paper in um, Amsterdam is a uh, supermarket corona tests. Oh. cannot get them for love nor money. You get to the supermarket, you know, in the days where we were testing before we realised, or before, when, because everybody's testing all the time, you, there'd be 20 packets, you know, at the supermarket in the morning at your local Albert Hine, and by 10 o'clock they were all gone. Anyway, that's another sub- subject for another day. Corrie, I'm going to kick off six quick questions for Red Energy, and I'm going to ask you about Ridley Scott, who turns 84 this week. What is your favourite Ridley Scott movie? Well, Caro, I'm a, I'm a fan of Alien, even though my children would be horrified. They still can't believe that I like sci- the occasional sci-fi movie. And I did love Gladiator with Russell Crowe. But I suspect, my friend, that the best movie is still to come on our, well, on our screen. Maybe it's over there. House of Gucci. I'm not sure when See it premieres. tomorrow. Oh, my See goodness. Oh, I can't wait to hear next week. So Lady this Gaga. is Lady Gaga and Adam Driver. Uh, Lady Gaga plays uh, the ambitious Patrizia Reggiani, the uh, very seductive, beautiful um, girl from humble beginnings who marries into the Gucci family. And then what unfolds is this um, story of ambition and betrayal and revenge and ultimately murder. So all based on what actually happened to the House of Gucci. Cannot wait. Ridley Scott turned 84. Happy birthday and can't wait to see your new movie. Caro, follow well, that, will, that, will um, that will be my F for next week, Corrie. Good. And I'm seeing, you're happy to hear I'm seeing it at 10.30 because if the movie ends after five, it doesn't show anymore. So cinemas are open early as well. Um, well, that, well, it's not F because we don't do film. It's S. 
screen. Sorry. I'm thinking S. Oh, do we have a fashion segment? Um, Caro, <laughs> following news of a northern English pub being snowed in for three days recently with an Oasis tribute band as the only form of entertainment, have you ever been marooned somewhere? Well, funnily enough, Connie, I love this I story. Have. <laughs> I have. Um, Sorry, can before you, you before you go on, can you just tell me about the? Does history relate how everybody felt after three days being locked in a pub with the Oasis tribute band? Corrie, they all fell in love with each other, and they're having planning reunions. I swear, this is the funniest story. It happened last weekend, so um. The band is called No Aces. <laughs> did, 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 this, did this hit the headlines in a No, story? that's why. I, like, you know this is my kind of story. You know, you knew that I would love this. It is. Uh, you know, Liam Gallagher actually came out and said he was really jealous that he wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, um, it was, it's the highest pub in England. It's in northern England. It's in Yorkshire, right? And there was... Um, the I think the weather forecast said light snow. People went in their camper vans, all these crazy Oasis fans, blah, blah, blah. And the name of the pub was the Tan Hill Inn. And anyway, guess what? I think I think I don't think there was that many people there. I think it was about 60 people. And there were seven people working the bar on the night. And there was such a heavy snowfall that they were stranded in this Tan Hill Inn in the Yorkshire Dales. Um, for three nights, more than five feet of snow. There were meant to be more people, obviously. The gig was sold out, but then with the snowfalls, a lot of people didn't go, but 70 people did make it. The band just said we're eternally grateful, one of the greatest experiences of our lives. <laughs> we wouldn't exist without our supporters, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they did all these be- interviews with people as they were leaving the pub three days later, and one guy goes, there's talk of a reunion, I think. <laughs> and the publican, the woman publican was absolutely hysterical. She said, we did get a bit antsy, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and also, and also, it. how many pork pa- packets of pork scratchings can one eat in three days? <laughs> oh, my. It just sounded absolutely hysterical. And all the people, but most of the people who came out said we'd be friends for life. You know, it's just incredible. One of the great, anyway, I also was stranded many years ago, back in the 80s, in a pub in Yorkshire, can you believe it? On the Yorkshire Moors, only for we were. I was there with a couple of friends. We were going for one night. We ended. We had to stay for two because we literally could not get out uh, for the second night. We stayed in and had beautiful meals and drank beers, and it was just a whole lot of fun, quite frankly. But not as much fun as No Oasis. <laughs> no Oasis would have been. Apparently, they played the house down, and there was encore after encore. Corey, I, I bet there was. When you've got seventy-two well, hours to fill in. Which story, Corey, from uh, last week's AFL draft warmed your heart? Oh, Mac Andrew being drafted to the Gold Coast Suns. I sent you a little video that my son Will. I'm saying this as the proud mother was involved in um, putting this together for AFL Media. Uh, Mac Andrew at the moment, he was told that he would he was being drafted as the number five pick. He was off to the Gold Coast. And there's so much about this story we love. It just reminded me of that wonderful Google ad with the proud father whose daughter wants to play. Um, yep. You know, and it's a Sudanese, I imagine that's a Sudanese family. Mac Andrew was born in Egypt, but he's from South Sudan. 
His parents, Mary and Luol, so proud. AFL Media grabbed an interview with them, which was just joyful. And Mac, who is uh, uh, so tall, <laughs> like I'm thinking, I, I don't know what it is in centimetres, but it, it, it's over 200, but he must be like six foot eight in old terms, something like that. Um, he was really excited and he talked, he said uh, that he'd already received lots of messages from young Sudanese kids who are letting me know that they're following my journey and they look up to me. Well, not a dry eye in the house, Caro. <laughs> love that. Love that. Um, what, what's a, what was wonderful, Corrie, is that two African boys were actually drafted in the first round. Just extraordinary. I did see that vision. I absolutely loved it. Um, I'd seen it and then you sent it to me and I got the extended version. Absolutely gorgeous. Really, really lovely story. It's great. Now, and and Will and Will makes an appearance because he says, Oh, you know, I've got Stewie Jew on the on the line on the phone because Mac Andrew for some reason he hasn't paid his bill or the battery's flat on his phone or for some reason. So he has to use Will's phone to talk to his new coach. Really cute. So yes, that was great. Now, Caro, um, Prince Charles's slavery apology to the now British royal family free nation of Barbados. Did he go far enough in his apology? Well, I, I, a lot of people are saying no. I mean, it was good that he acknowledged um, Britain's very shameful history with slavery. And I've got to say that all over Europe now, um, the art world is acknowledging, just only because that's what I'm mainly doing in terms of culture, even the, um, the Moritz House in The Hague actually talks about the fact that the man who built it um, made all his money, you know, from cotton um, and basically I think in, in the East or West Indies and obviously from, from slave trade and how disgraceful it was. The Stedlick Museum acknowledges in many parts of the museum um, this same shameful past. I'm glad that Prince Charles, in, it was a really good speech, I'm glad he acknowledged what happened but I think a lot of people were hoping for an actual apology. And obviously, um, I don't know whether there are legal issues or whether it was a big thing that he mentioned it in the first place. But I think maybe it would have been great to have an actual heartfelt apology. I'm really glad, though, he mentioned it. So I'm sort of sitting on the fence here. But just want to make the point that who would have thought the old Barbados had beat Australia to, be, <laughs> to becoming a republic? <laughs> I know it's not, I don't think it's going to happen while the Queen is alive. Recently, I interviewed Malcolm Turnbull, who back in the 90s was head of the Republican um, organisation, Australia for Republic, and uh, he, he said it won't happen while the Queen is still alive. In fact, it might not even happen in my lifetime. So there you go. No, Corrie, um, your heart's been warmed a lot this week. Which Animal Kingdom story warmed your heart this week? <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Caro. The Sydney Aquarium Sea Life, this week they had a celebration. Same-sex penguin couple, Sven and Magic, they celebrated three years together. And according to the Sea Life's penguin keeper, Kira Ponting, um, she said that they're one of the most devoted couples in the colony. Penguins can be loyal, but usually it's only for a season or two. So these guys have been going around for three, which is really good. And she said... Magic still regularly collects most perfect pebbles that he can find for Sven, displaying what a great hunter and a partner he can be. And Miss Ponting went on to say, they set a great example to the rest of the colony. They're inseparable and proving just how strong penguin bonds can be. 
For their anniversary, Caro, they were each given a frozen fish cake. <laughs> so there you that, go. That story really warms my heart. It does. Well, <laughs> just a little little bit of Australian love from over here. And finally, let's end on this week's Dutch fact. And can you say Dutch fact in Dutch yet, Caroline Wilson? Well, Corrie, I didn't get much. I think that's a bit rough. I didn't get much um, warning. It's only been say, seven, um, it's only been seven weeks. Look, take your time. It's okay. Corrie, today's Dutch fact. I thought I thought we'd go completely cultural because Brendan's reading a wonderful book called Amsterdam: A History of the World's Most Liberal City, which Rose gave him when he arrived. It is a fascinating book by Russell Shortoat. He also wrote The Island at the Centre of the World. But my Dutch fact this week involves the probably the Dutch person I've heard of more than any other Dutch person, and that's Rembrandt. Now, Rembrandt is a fascinating character, came to Amsterdam in his early 20s, um, in the late 1500s, early 1600s from Leiden. He had a, a, a benefactor who brought him to Amsterdam. He He's a very, very checkered story, Rembrandt. He, um, although he is just, you know, one of the most famous artists in the world, and, you know, I've been in recent days to see the anatomy lesson of Dr. Tolp, as I talked about, and obviously Night Watch, and I've been to self-portraits. We've ridden out to the end of the ring and looked at his statue next to a beautiful windmill on the Amstel River. Um, statues of him everywhere. He, um, What's fascinating about Rembrandt, he died pretty much penniless in his, in his 60s, looking about 10 years older than he actually was. He did not treat his women well at all. Certainly his last partner, who sort of replaced his wife, who died after giving birth, I think, to their fourth child, um, he ended up having to sell his wife's grave because he'd lost all his money on a really bad, well, on several really bad deals, including paying far too much for a piece of real estate in Amsterdam. He burnt bridges everywhere with most of the, he forged his great partnerships and then he fell out with people. He fell out with everyone. Not good for his um, bank balance. And although he is one of the most famous, well, probably the most famous Dutch artists, more famous than Vermeer, I imagine, and Van Dyck. So not only did he not paint, you know, this most famous part of the Dutch landscape and the beautiful new transformed canals, there was a new city hall that was built in the 17th century. He painted the old drab city hall. He never painted the beautiful cityscapes. He didn't do churches. It's just fascinating that he lived all his life, once he moved to Amsterdam in his early 20s, he and he never really left Amsterdam. He wasn't a worldwide traveller. He didn't go to France or Italy like a lot of artists. He only painted... Um, did wonderful portraits, wonderful introspective paintings. And I think Robert Hughes has written ad nauseum about how he looks inside people better than any other artist. But, yeah, just an interesting Rembrandt fact. I thought I'd leave you with that today, Corrie. It is. And the other thing about Rembrandt is because he had a studio or, or, or a workroom of uh, junior painters, the world, the art world for 300 years has been confused about is this a real Rembrandt or is it a is it in the school of Rembrandt or the style of Rembrandt? That remains one of life's great mysteries, whether the painting is a real Rembrandt or not. Well, certainly not Nightwatch, which is a, I mean, so his best work is unbelievable, but I had no idea that he ended, ended, well, you know, so many great artists ended penniless and pretty sad and he was one of them. 
Caro, um, great to share our 199th together. We're on to 200 next week with Anna from the Op Shop, as I said, as our special co-potty. Uh, take care over there. Hope you're feeling better. Hope, um, well, you'll start getting into the Christmas spirit soon. Already talking about the Christmas menu over here, Corrie. Some very controversial. We've got lots of lovely Swedish family coming over, so I'm looking forward to a bit of herring. But I will be doing my Christmas ham <laughs> and I will be brining my turkey. I'm sorry, no offence <laughs> to the Swedes, but you're on your own with the herring. Um, Caro, I think we'll do a bit of Christmas talk next week. I love nothing more than hearing about Anna's turkey basting and uh, and, what, basting. <laughs> and what family's coming right. for dinner. So if you are interested in, in the traditional Christmas and, <laughs> and some tips, we'll certainly have them next week. Thank you, of course, to our podcast sponsors, Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. And we love you, Red Energy, for being part of our gang. And also Prince Wine Store, Miles, thanks for coming in. And to all the gang at Prince Wine Store, um, thank you for all that you provide to our podcast listeners in terms of discounts and special deals. If you'd like to write to us, you can. Just email feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. Don't forget we're on Instagram and Facebook. And, Carol, what do we say? This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806? And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world.